ברוך השם, you're a bad Jew. שלום. Welcome back to another episode of Bad Jew, the place where there was no such thing as a bad Jew. With me today is Rabbi Simon Jacobson. Simon, I wish I could say that I was seeing you on better circumstances, but with the news from Israel that has hit our world, we are kind of in a state of shock. How are you holding up in this time? As you said, it's a shock. It's quite overwhelming. But at the same time, we Jews have been trained to arise to the occasion. You know, myself as a teacher, a mentor, a, an author, a writer, this is a time where people have many questions and we have to play the role of offering clarity, courage, inspiration, direction. What can we do? And we definitely don't want to be demoralized to the point where we get paralyzed. We need to be motivated to do everything we can to help fight the, the right cause. Israel, the Jewish people are, have been attacked in this most brutal way. But our response will be with, obviously, with do everything possible to protect our innocent lives, but also to spread as much light as we can, because that's what dispels darkness. I love that. I think that that very much covers the theme of what we're going to be talking about in today's episode. Before we get to the main topic, we have the right of entry under the podcast, which is known as the Bad Jew 4-Minute Challenge, telling your life story in four minutes. Are you ready? Whenever you are. Echad, Shtayim, Shalosh. Okay. <laughs> so I was born in 1956 in the Crown Heights, USA, in Brooklyn, New York. My parents are both Russian-born, who met and married after World War II in, the, in uh, New York. And I've lived here all my life. I grew up in the Chabad Hasidic community, going to their schools, my education. At the same time, I grew up in a home that was very non-dogmatic, very open-minded in the sense of all ideas were welcome. My parents both well-read, educated. My father was a journalist. I say was because he passed away 18 years ago. And uh, therefore, it was a very interesting mix of an intense Jewish education while also having the exposure to all kinds of ideas and people. And that worked re- very well for me because I'm a natural skeptic. So I don't know how I would have done with people imposing or forcing me to conform and fit into other people's models and, you know, the herd mentality, as they call it. So that was my upbringing. And in my teenage years, I struggled philosophically and ideologically with Judaism, you know, really wanting to establish something that would resonate for me. And I saw a lot of the, as I mentioned, the dogma, the laws, the traditions, the details, the mechanics of Judaism, let's call it that. But I, was some, I wanted something more than just mechanical Judaism. I wanted a soul, the spirit. So I had beautiful people in my life. Let me make that very clear. But still something that, you know, inspires a, a teenager to be passionate. I was looking for something to create revolution. You know, I was like a, a rebel without a cause. Let's call it that. And in my teenage years, with all my different searches and seeking out, I finally discovered it in the soul of Judaism, which is in the, mystic, the mysticism in the Hasidus, in the Kabbalah, that talks about not just the mechanics, but what is the soul. And once it touched my heart and soul, like music, it resonated in the deepest place. And that's it. And that's the story of my life. After that, I've committed all the way. I'm like an extremist. I'm either completely in or completely out. I completely committed myself. And I learned to use my communication tools and my writing skills to be able to be a sort of a bridge 
between what I like to call between the uh, between Judaism, the Torah, the, between the secular and the spiritual. Let's call it that. To present the universal ideas and wisdom and psychology of uh, Judaism, timeless ideas in a timely fashion that addresses all types of audiences. So that's really what I excel at being able to communicate even to very secular audiences. Some people call me a rabbi of atheists because I am able to identify and we're able to find that common denominator because at the end of the day, each of us is a soul that's searching purpose and meaning and love and connection. And so that's what I do. And I, for many years, I worked for the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I was a, what's called a choza. I remember, memorized hours and hours of his talks and then had them published, written and published. I, I was also the writer. After his stroke and passing 30 years ago, essentially, I went off, I wrote the book called Toward a Meaningful Life, by, published by William Morrow, which does exactly that. It takes these universal teachings and presents them in a way that people of all backgrounds. And, and then as a result of that, that grew into the Meaningful Life Center, which I am a dean of and founder of till this very day using all technologies and all platforms to offer people direction, guidance, exactly as the name implies, how to live a more meaningful life. Talking about Israel and the tragedies going on, so I can't tell you how many questions coming in because we have a pretty good following. We built a following of a nice quarter million subscribers on YouTube and other platforms. So all the questions, that's now we're like in war mode ourselves in trying to respond to people's people's big questions, people's fear, people's confusion and shock. And that's really what I've been doing all day today and yesterday since the holiday ended. And that brings us back where we are now. So when you invited me and I thank you for the honor to be with you, I all mean to reach your audience and I commend you for using the technology today to do that. So here I are, we were on the same page in that context. And I don't know if I used up my four minutes or not, but if I did, Great. If, if I didn't, you can spill over to the next. You give me a few extra minutes for later. Sure, sure. Well, you did perfectly well in our four-minute challenge, and I want to thank you for introducing yourself in such a well-said way. That's one of those bios that had no fat, was all bone and muscle. So I want to thank you for giving us a really great story into your life and a really great window into uh, the perspectives that you've been able to share. I also want to thank you for your vulnerability and your realism with talking about as a teenager, your desire to pursue passion, the rebel without a cause note, which was really great to hear. I think that's something that a lot of people feel. I think a lot of young Jewish professionals, especially the ones who listen to this podcast, feel that they are looking for the thing that connects them. Sometimes they are able to take pride in their identity, but they're not able to take ownership of the religiosity that comes with it, or the cultural Jews, if you will. And it sounds like you had a very similar journey and were able to find that passion, which I think is a very common motif that my listeners have, that the speakers on my podcast have. And I want to no. thank you for that. Right now, the world seems to be in chaos. That's a, not the nice way to put it. We were all focused on Ukraine until what happened in Israel this last Saturday, right in the middle you know, right after Shabbat, at the beginning of Simchat Torah, people were unplugged. For those who were keeping Shabbos and those who were keeping Simchat Torah, they were unplugged hearing about the whispers from fellow congregants in the shuls 
of this attack that has happened. Essentially, the shot heard around the world. However, we also live in a world where nothing happens without reason. So what reason can we connect to Simcha Torah, the timeliness of this action, to the atrocities happening in Israel right now? Well, let me just say this as a big uh, quali qualification and disclaimer, if I may. I don't want to in any way give the impression that I have the answers to all questions. And I think one of the beautiful and powerful things about Jewish survival, and I say not just survival, the fact that we're here over thousands of years. I remember we've been persecuted and executed and murdered and gassed and killed and expelled in every possible way. And people wonder what's like, what's the secret? How do we, how do we make it? When all the great empires of all God, every empire from the Roman, the Ottoman, the Babylonian, the Persian, the Egyptian, the Spanish, and so on. So I think one of the things to keep in mind and to answer your question is that Jews always looked at suffering right in the eye. They didn't go into denial. They didn't ignore it. They didn't make believe, oh, everything is just great. They suffered. But they had some great secret weapon that was even more powerful than the suffering. And that suffering and pain does not define us. What defines us is our souls. What defines us is our connection to God, is our purpose in life. So Simcha's Torah is actually the celebration of indestructibility of the Jewish people because it comes after Yom Kippur where we were forgiven for a grave sin called the golden calf. So firstly, the irony that it should happen on Simcha's Torah, which exposed, let's be honest, our our, that we're not invincible. Everyone thought Israel, you know, had it all figured out, caught by surprise. So my first lesson and understanding is that happening on Simchus Torah is we don't have answers to why this happened. I have no idea why God would allow this to happen. You talk about when you start seeing the images, I mean, even the death of one innocent person, you're talking over a thousand brutally, you know, beheadings. I don't want to become graphic here. It's not the place. You're talking about horrible, horrible atrocities on Simchus Torah which interestingly, the Nazis also loved, quote unquote, to punish the Jews or to kill Jews on their holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Simchus Torah. So this is part of the mysteries of why God allows bad people to hurt good people, innocent people. I don't have an answer for that, but I do have an answer to say that we don't always know why things happen. But we ask the question, I say, we, the Jews, what are we going to do about it? That's the message of Simchus Torah that despite setbacks, despite suffering, despite pain, we are not going to lie down and die. We're not passive. We will become even more proactive, go on the offense, and yes, protect our young, protect our innocent, but above all, we will not become bad people because bad things are were done to us. That is the Jewish way. After World War II, we didn't go for revenge to, to blow up the cafes in uh, Germany. Hamas would learn a little from that if they have so much it's grievances and so on. What we did was we built our families and we built generations. And the revenge, as most Holocaust survivors will tell you, look at our photo albums, look at our children, our grandchildren, our families that we built. So yes, we have to fight the war. We will not take this in any way lightly. And it'll be fought as aggressive as necessary to eradicate the enemy. But again, that does not define us as Jews. We're not warriors. We look for peace. And I just heard a line, I'm not sure who coined it, that if all the terrorists and all the 
our enemies, would lay down their arms, there would be peace in a moment. If the Jewish people and Israel laid down their arms, you know what would happen? We'd be annihilated. That tells you enough about the whole story. So we continue to hold on to what we cherish, which is love. We will not become haters. We will not copy the enemy. I once heard that one Nazi was about to kill a Jew and he was about to shoot him. So the Jew asked, can I say my final prayers? And he said, sure. And he allowed him, he began to whisper. And the Nazi said, what are you saying? He said, I'm thanking God. He says, what are you thanking God for, you dirty Jew? I'm about to kill you. You're at my mercy. He said, I'm thanking God that he did not create me like you. And I think that's critical lesson to learn. So I, no one wanted this. No one asked for this. It's extremely painful to hear. It's overwhelming in many ways, but we are going to become stronger from it and we will prevail as we always have. That to me is the simplest Torah story. Nothing will ever eliminate the fire, the flame, the pilot flame that burns inside the heart of every Jew. And for that matter, every good human being on this earth. I love your words of empowerment. I love your connection to history and what you've been able to create. But most importantly, I really do love your honesty and your transparency and your ability to say, I don't know all the answers uh, with someone with the authority that you have. And I really do respect that, appreciate that. I think there is another individual. It's maybe uh, the wisest thing I've said today. <laughs> There's another individual out there, author Samuel L. Boyd. He, he wrote uh, this piece in The Conversation, which is an online magazine. But in the online magazine, talking about Simcha Torah, the very end of it, he mentions that the biblical command to have joy in reading the Torah also lays a framework for resilience in the midst of troubled times. Weisel himself, born on Simchat Torah in 1928, recounted witnessing Jews who had no Torah scrolls and lived the amid the unthinkable horror in the concentration camp. Yet during Simchat Torah, one adult picked up a child and delight, delightedly danced with him as though he were a Torah scroll. And so I think it's a really beautiful illustration of the resilience that is required in order to find happiness, the Simcha within Simcha Torah. Is there, in the same way that the Talmud says, live well, it is the greatest revenge. Is there a similar message, similar meaning from Simcha Torah? Yeah, yes. Remember, joy is not the, the opposite of pain. People can be in pain, people can be suffering, and they still have the core, their core is intact. So there's a joy about that. You know, there are a lot of people confuse joy with like instant gratification. I ate a good meal. I enjoyed uh, some other physical pleasure in this world. Joy, true, true joy is connection. You feel connected. You feel you have purpose. You feel that you have the gift of life. You cherish the gift of life every given moment. And I don't know if there's a better way to capture a simple story. You know, I was in California during... Simchus Torah. My family's there. My daughter lives there. And you should have seen the dancing taking place once we heard the news. And it wasn't dancing to escape, escapism to escape or to ignore. It was a dancing and saying, we will not allow such pain to vanquish us. Our joy was a joy coming that we will ultimately prevail. You can joy with, you can dance with tears as well. So I think the message of Simchus Torah is exactly that. And I think that's what we Zell captured so well. Uh, yes, even in, in the concentration camps, they had no, oh, nothing, oh, you know, hopelessness. I mean, Viktor Frankl captured it well in, in his book, Man's, Man's Search for Meaning, the idea that there's always meaning. And even in pain, you can find meaning. We don't ask for it, and it's not justifying it. Let me make that clear. 
But once it happens, we turn, we, we look for ways to transform our liabilities into assets. Uh, the Bible puts it very well in the book, the beginning of Exodus, where it says that the more the Jews were oppressed by their enemies, by the Egyptians in, this, in their slavery, the more they blossomed and the more they flourished and thrived. So does that mean that what's happening in Israel, as convoluted and as horrible as the scenes that we are seeing right now, in the long run will be an opportunity? Uh, absolutely. I mean, again, it's not something you ask for. Like anything in life, there are many things we don't want. But when it comes our way, we can't allow that to, to sidetrack us. Look, look at the unprecedented show of unity. Just a week ago, there was major rifts and divides in Israel. And they still exist. But we know we're one family. And we know that we're all targets, equal targets. And you see that unity. So there are tremendous opportunities. At the end of the day, I'll use Maimonides' expression, where he says when a catastrophe strikes an individual or a community, it would be callous and insensitive to see it as an accident and just ignore it. You have to see it as a wake-up call, as a time for soul-searching, for introspection. Now, we have to remember, we're right in the beginning of a war. So let's not forget there are 300,000 reservists that have been called up. Unfortunately, you know, God can be merciful and there should be no casualties, but unfortunately, going to be a long drawn out war, we have real enemies, sworn enemies. So I think that we have to not forget that. But at the same time, you see the spirit of the Israeli army. You see the spirit of the people supporting them. And I feel like I'm part of it. I think we're both part of it. I think are talking about this. Remember, the war is not just on the battlefield. It's also a war of information, a media war, a war over public opinion. There are people that have such distortions. I mean, I see people justifying all of this and, 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 and saying Israel is, the, is the, the enemy. And Israel's the criminal. So we have a critical role to play to make sure on social media and every possible way to, to be, have that moral clarity, what is right, what is wrong. And I think we, you and I, and all of us, and all the listeners, are, we're all part of this. And you, you're either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. So there's a real battle at work and uh, that we need to really recognize, which is the most important thing to emphasize. But overall, yes, yes, there will, it's a plenty of a tremendous opportunity. You know, they say that the Jewish people are like a tea bag. You don't know how strong they are until you put them into hot water. <laughs> I've never heard that before, but I like that expression. Yeah. I, I went to my first rally last night, you know, which had a very similar energy to Simcha Torah, by the way. In the sense that you have people dancing in the street, you have people playing music, you have people, uh, at least at the rally, I didn't see people drinking alcohol, but I know that drinking alcohol is a part of Simcha Torah for that sense of happiness. In the rally, I didn't see that. I actually saw a combination of happiness and mourning. It was a, a strange feeling of being able to feel every single emotion at once, which is like, I, I'm angry and I'm sad and I show up there and we were in Beverly Hills. So actually, we're both in LA, by the way. And what ended up happening was I suddenly also felt very empowered and very happy and relieved to be amongst my family. Now, obviously, my blood family, my parents who live north from here an hour away in Oxnard, but actually with my Jewish family from across all of LA, people I've never met before. And I was very validating and very human. And 
you know, I'm sure you've experienced similar experiences in uh, your shuls, if you've gotten any rallies or vigils. Absolutely. And the children rallies, I mean, this is, this is classic what Jews do. We, we come together, we pray for each other. We realize we're one organism. And if one part of it is ailing, all of us are ailing. And one part gets stronger, all of us get stronger. And that feels very much like Simcha Torah too. If one reads the Torah and is blessed with the Torah, and we all are in many ways. I mean, we have this amazing gift. We are the people that chose the Torah, I imagine. So, And we call the Torah Eitz Tayemhi. It's our tree of life. We hold on to it. The Torah has traveled with us through all of this. So we have a good partner. We do have a good partner. How, how did we, I I think in, in celebrating the Torah, we should also talk about how we first received the Torah. I know that it was on the the top of the, the, the mountain, right? But why, why did the Jews get the Torah as opposed to any other nation out there? Well, the Talmud, interestingly, and this may also be related to what we're discussing, the, the current events that, that tells us that, that, that God actually offered the Torah to other nations. He offered the Torah first to the children of Esau, was Jacob's twin brother. He offered the Torah to the children of Yishmael. And Esau and Yishmael, respectively, are the ancestors of the Christian Western Roman in the world and the Yishmael ancestor of the Muslim Christian and Arab Muslim world. And they rejected it because they looked into the Torah. They said, it's too difficult for us to accept some of these laws. And then God offered it to the Jewish people who right away immediately accepted it. So many people ask the question, would God didn't know that they would reject it? And the answer given, interestingly also, is that God was preparing them that one day you will embrace these values. You may not be ready right now. It'll take time. So I think the connection to Torah is a tremendous lesson for all the nations of the world, not just for Jews. We are all created by God. Eight billion people and counting on this earth were created by God for a purpose. This is a lesson, a message I would share with everyone, including even our enemies. You were created by God to do what? To turn this world into a spiritual garden, a world of love, a world of harmony. We're entitled to our diversity, but not to harm each other. And that is the calling that each of us has. And the Torah is essentially captures that message. It says, I give you two paths the path of life and the path of death. Choose the path of life. You have free will. And very much what's happening right now that began our Simchus Torah this year, like a battle between life and death, between good and evil. So Torah is essentially a blueprint for existence, for creation, for all people. There's an interesting medrash I'll I'll, I'll cite that says that that the nations of the world knew what Israel and the Holy Temple did for them, protects them, instead of attacking it, they would, they would surround it with legions to protect it because they knew what kind of blessings they received from it. That's how we look at it, that these very enemies that are attacking their very source of life, they're attacking innocent people, they're attacking life, they're attacking God, they're attacking the Jewish people. But the truth is it's an attack on all of us. Every, every, every God-fearing person, any decent person. As we always know, you know, even though the Jews may be the miners' canary, they may be the first ones that are attacked. But if you attack one innocent person, you're attacking every innocent person on earth. 
I couldn't agree more. It definitely has struck our communities to see civilians, you know, getting slaughtered. It, it, it strikes everyone to the core equally. I think that's been one of the, you know, most backwards way to, ways to be inspired in this whole mess is the fact that everyone empathizes and feels for this. And I don't know any other community in the world that, that does this as well uh, on this level. So I, I just, I, I want to thank you for illustrating that. But also there, you said something that was interesting. And I think that this question that I have actually would be great, would, 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 would do the most justice if it was geared towards those who desire to oppress us, to communicate their hate with physical action and violence. And that is that you said that if the world knew what the Jews, what the temples and the Jews were doing for the world, they wouldn't be desecrating. If you could sum up exactly what Jews do and what the temple does and do a few bullet points, just to have it on record, what would you say it is? Absolutely, I will. There was a book, remember Thomas Kale came in with a book, The Gifts of the Jews. It was a bestseller a number of years ago. He lists there, if I recall correctly, 30 words that the Jewish people contributed to the world. So I'll just choose a few of them. And remember, he was a non-Jewish scholar, so he has a certain credibility. But the fact is, the Jews brought civilization to this world. Let's begin with the most important one. This country, the United States, Declaration of Independence, we, find, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and, and are endowed by the Creator with inalienable rights. That's a direct lifting out of the Bible, that each human being was created in the divine image and therefore is sacred. Period. Sacred. You take away that, you take away civilization. You take away freedom. You take away all decency and all humanity. And the founding fathers knew that, and it's already been demonstrated how they took that. So that's number one, maybe the most important message of all messages. The, uh, the concept of charity, of justice. So the Bible tells us Abraham, he committed his life to teaching his children and his family to follow the path of virtue and justice. This was not common. Frankly, until the United States became a country, you tell me, what, what ruled in the world? Monarchs, despots, some of them may have been benevolent, but most were not. There were authoritative rule that was not necessarily just at all. A few people decided the destiny of millions. And the Jewish people taught us that, the, the Jewish people brought to the world that concept of justice and of virtue and of charity, tzedakah, the idea of being, being kind, to those that are in need, that it's not a world of just the survival of the fittest and dog eats dog. Those things come to mind immediately. If you want to go further, the very concept of community, the concept of a kahila, community. Ask any, any faithful Christian or Muslim for that matter, where did you get most of the ideas of the Quran or of the New Testament? You know, besides the fact that Jesus was a religious Jew, I mean, the fact is, it is essentially all based on, so you have over 4 billion people on this planet that ultimately trace their ethics and their morals and their values to Torah-based uh, ideas. And I can go on and on, but those are some bullet points that you asked for. I think it really helps clarify that. And to have that on record, point by point made, I think is going to be very valuable to listeners, whether they are Jewish or not Jewish. And I'm hoping more so that 
it are non it is, it is the non-Jews that hear that message because we're tired. I, I, you know, we're empowered and we're enraged and we're also, you know, inspired to embrace the, our identities more to seek light in all this darkness. But even so, I can tell you that one thing that's very real is that we are tired. We're tired of feeling hunted all the time. Right now, you know, I've felt relatively safe in my neighborhood. I live in Culver City, which is not a Jewish area like Pico Robertson is in Los Angeles. But I right. still, you know, I'm walking around my kippah, which is nice and shiny and blue. I wear a Hamza around my neck around my neck at all times. I'm pretty visibly Jewish. I have a I have one other neighbor that happens to be Hasidic, you know, and he walks to shul. Him and his family are technically vulnerable. And I'm tired of feeling vulnerable. I'm tired of that feeling on an individual level. I think our neighbor, my Hasidic neighbor feels that way too. And I think all of us in the, all of my, you know, Jewish family, whether they are in Oxnard or whether they are in the Pico Robertson area, we're tired of feeling that. So I think it's what you've said on record is going to be invaluable to us. And I want to thank you for that, Simon. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm, as you see, a very proud Jew. But I am also a universalist. I see Judaism's message to be universal for every person. I don't see us as exclusionary. I frankly have met many Muslims in my life. And I asked them, I said to them, I don't understand your great grandfather, Abraham, would he be proud of all these acts of violence? I mean, Abraham prayed for infidels. So I, I just don't, I mean, I get it because I know it's not coming from religious place, even though they like to state that it is. But it's like, to me, it's so antithetical to the real values. And uh, I am not naive. I understand when you see such barbarism, you just have to fight, do whatever has to be done. So let's not get wrong. But I really like cry in a way that the human beings get that, that can stoop and fall and become so, so, uh, so obscene, so decadent, so lower than any animal in behaving in the way they have with children, with women. I mean, you know, it's... But we continue to do what we believe in, and hopefully the message will get through to those that receive it and are open. Amen. I hope the same. I pray for the same. And I think it makes this holiday, Simcha Torah, even more important. The timeliness of it, it has meaning to it. And I want to thank you for shedding light on the concepts and the ideas. I want to end with a screenshot that I grabbed directly from a website that you might recognize, Rabbi. You wrote this article about finding light in dark times. And it says here, the light, our hearts are broken, but our broken hearts inspire us to fix the world. When we see darkness, we demand more light. This part of us, this unbreakable spirit, this perpetual resolve, this eternal flame is the most divine part of who we are. And later on, you also write that death itself is the greatest sin against God. It is the greatest antithesis to God. Death is an aberration. Why should our soul ever have to leave a body? But then we begin to rebuild the bridge between body and soul, between matter and spirit, between heaven and earth. And it is in this bridge that God is most present. And I want to just commend your writing for that. It's beautifully said. It's almost poetic. And I think it really captures a lot of what you've already said on the show. And it really embodies a lot of what the Torah teaches, a great deal of it. I just want to thank you for shedding light on Simcha Torah that way in this special and unique episode. 
Absolutely. Thank you. And we conclude Simcha's Torah. The last verse we read before we dance is that from Zion will come Torah. The word of God from Jerusalem. So the main export from Israel should be not having to fight weapons with wars and weapons, but to spread Torah's message and values and the word of God. That's our ultimate goal. Amen. What a beautiful concept. Rabbi Jacobson, if people want to reach out to you and connect with you, what is the best way they can? So MeaningfulLife.com is our website where you can find a full a wide array of materials and also reach me, contact me or my office. And also check out our YouTube channel, which is again, Meaningful Life Center, Simon Jacobs in my name. And subscribe and share and I'd love to hear your feedback and thoughts. And I'm, I'm, I'm out there, I'm accessible. Please reach out any way you can. Thank you so much. And it is true, you know, you have an incredible YouTube channel. Your website has so many beautiful lessons to it. Your books, what you've put out, put out there before, are very enlightening and inspiring. I was very thankful to be connected with you. I want to thank you again for giving us 30 minutes on the show to talk about Simcha Torah in this brief time, but also talk about the nuanced conflict, the massacre that is happening in Israel. Simon, thank you so much. God bless you. God bless you listeners. listeners. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Look forward to continuing conversation. Couldn't say it better myself. Till next time. Shalom.